Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 1618, the Earl of Rutland and his wife accused three women of bewitching their family. They believed that bewitchment was the cause of death of their first son and the long-term illness of their second. The women in question were former servants of their household at Belvoir, or Beaver, Castle near Bottisford, England, Joan Flower, a Bottisford cunning woman, and her two daughters, Margaret and Philippa. Joan Flower died while being transported to the prison at Lincoln. Her two daughters were interrogated mercilessly by the Earl and several other noblemen who also served as magistrates in Lincoln County until they confessed. The jury found both guilty, and the judge sentenced them to death. Less than a year later, the Earl's second son succumbed to his long-term illness. The Earl had his family tomb inscribed with these words. In 1608, he married ye lady Cecilia Hungerford, daughter to ye honorable knight Sir John Tufton, by whom he had two sons, both of which died in their infancy by wicked practices and sorcery. Francis Manners and his wife Cecily were convinced that their family had been cursed by a witch. Historian Tracy Borman suspects foul play of a non-magical sort. Ultimately, the motive mattered little to the flower women. Their accusers were too powerful to be denied a conviction, and they were too inconsequential, with too few friends in Bottisford or Lincoln to survive a witch hunt. Hundreds of English folk like Joan and her daughters were accused of witchcraft between 1484 and 1750. Some were cunning and known to have magical abilities, Others were old women, disabled men, widows with too much economic independence, religious or ethnic minorities, outsiders, or just neighbors who rubbed their communities the wrong way. Early modern Europeans both feared and relied on those with magical abilities. Witch hunters, like King James VI and I, or Matthew Hopkins, used torture, fear, and their own political power to foment panics, sending dozens, sometimes hundreds of women and men to their graves. Magical belief, good and evil witchcraft, and cunning folk barely survived these dark times. In some places, they did not. The witch panics, in which dozens or hundreds of women and men could be swept up by accusations in a matter of months, made it ever more dangerous for the cunning folk to practice their own magic, even if it was only for good. By the early 17th century, elites were growing ever more skeptical of the existence of magic and real witches. Some of that dis disbelief was fueled, as for Reginald Scott, by the belief that no human could have those godly powers, for others, the rise of alchemy, science, new mathematics, and ways of understanding the world left little room for magic. But those disbeliefs did not save the women and men, like Joan and her daughters, who were killed for alleged crimes of witchcraft. I'm Winifred Sanderson. And I'm Sarah Sanderson. And we are your witches for this episode of Dig. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> um, uh, we want to send a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, uh, but especially our excavator and auger level patrons, Lauren, Eric, Denise, Colin, Maddie, Susan, Edward, Christopher, Peggy, Danielle, Maggie, and Iris. Oh, wow. 
you've been supporting us for so long, we should probably just rename the show after you. <laughs> um, maybe an anagram. Uh, oh, wait, no. There's just like, there's not enough vowels. Uh, so unless I guess if we start being a Swedish podcast, yes. which after Eurovision, yes. I'm totally for that. Yes. Let's just, <laughs> let's all start speaking in Swedish and singing in Swedish and just live Swedish. Um, anyway, we can't thank you enough. Um, and so thank you anyway, right? Before we begin, there's some confusion about the actual dates of the Belvoir Witches case. Borman suggests that Joan and her daughters were arrested in December 1618 and then interrogated and tried in the first few months of 1619. The contemporary pamphlet that was published shortly after the trial, and which is digitized on the University of Michigan Library website, lists the dates of the interrogations and trial in January to March 1618. We're going to assume that Borman has cross-checked the pamphlet with other sources and the dates run along her timeline. Also, full disclosure, the reason I lobbied for us to do this series now and the reason I picked my topic is because I'm currently teaching a history of witchcraft and magic class. And I originally hoped to just like ass- assign a bunch of dig episodes and not have to do a lot of like prep work for that. <laughs> but then it, but then it got changed to the seminar um, style class. And I'm just letting the students pick the assignments also, which reduces my prep time a little Very. bit. I used Tracy Borman's wonderful book, Witches, um, to write a role-playing game for this class, which we start playing on Tuesday, the Tuesday after actually Sarah and I are recording this episode. And then when I first started writing this episode, I had to prep to teach my students about cunning folk and Christianity in medieval and early modern Europe. So I'm doing a lot of double dipping here (laughs) as much as possible. Um, And that's why this episode is a little bit more about just one aspect of Borman's book, um, Joan Flower, as a cunning woman. And very little about the broader, more intricate story that she wove together in her really wonderful book. Um, It's a a fantastic book. Really, really readable. Um, I highly recommend it just for a good read or if you want to assign it to undergrads or even, I think, high school students could could really um enjoy this book um it's a good deep dive into the english witch hunting culture and the tragic story of course of joan flower and her daughters uh borman totally convinced me that a certain suitor who we'll talk about later in this episode had with with ulterior motives was the culprit um the true you know villain in the story um but more on that a little bit later we'll, we'll let the story unfold naturally Ooh, it's like a, a halloween witch mystery also in interest of full disclosure there's a crying baby in my house so that will probably end up in the back <laughs> of uh of the recording sorry Joan Flower and her daughters were employed at Belvoir Castle as charwomen as early as 1612, though we don't know the exact start date of their employment. As Ave noted, according to Tracy Borman, Joan Flower had a local reputation as a cunning woman because of her knowledge of herbs and remedies. Borman even suggests that when she was employed by Francis Manners, Joan and the Earl would talk at length about herbal medicines, an interest that they both shared. For medieval and early modern Europe, just about every nation had its equivalent of the cunning folk, or those whose natural magical gifts allowed them to help their neighbors find lost objects, learn about their future, fight off evil spirits who would do them harm, protect the crop and the livestock, heal injuries and illnesses, and the like. In England, they were the cunning folk. In France, the divin garancer, or divine healers. And I just butchered that French, but it sounded French, so I'm going to get it. Yeah, yeah, it works. 
In Spain, Portugal, in Latin America, the curanderos or healers. Um, in Germany, they were the krauterhexen or the herb witches. In Norway, in Denmark, the kluge folk or <laughs> wise folk. In Russia, the vetmak or knower, which my friend Katie, the Russian linguist, tells me also means male witch um, more specifically. In Netherlands, Tover Doctor or Magic Doctor. And in Italy, they were the Benedanti or Good Walkers. Carlo Ginzburg um, was among the first historians to posit that belief in magic and witches in the modern, early modern Europe was not as saturated with fear as the Inquisition and witch hunts that we sort of have records for would presume. While many hundreds of uh, women and men were tried and condemned for practicing magic, it, it is very likely that many more women and men who practiced magic were not tried and condemned. There was a strong popular belief across the continent and the United Kingdom and Ireland that there were those who practiced good magic, the cunning folk, uh, the Benendanti that Ginsberg discusses in his 1966 book on witchcraft and agrarian cults in um, 16th and 17th centuries and you know their equivalents across um, all of these nations. In some cases, like with the Benendanti, these good witches fought the bad witches and demons who plagued their communities. According to one interview, Ginsburg discovered the Benendanti of Italy while he was going from archive to archive in Italy trying to gather a wide range of samples of witchcraft cases in local and regional court records. He had been disappointed that the first case he ever found just sort of confirmed the hypothesis he had about witchcraft, Catholic inquisitions, and medieval Italian history. He wanted to be excited about the topic, so he went looking for anomalies. In Venice, he found a case that introduced him to the Benendanti. Recounted in his foundational work on Italian witches, The Night Battles, um, which, is, which is the English English title. That is like the coolest, most intriguing name for a book about witches ever. <laughs> I know you. I, I mean, it's a super good book. So also I recommend go out and get this. It's pretty easily accessible. Um, so in The Night Battles, Ginsburg outlines the multifaceted relationship that early modern Italians had with their magically gifted folk. He opens the first chapter with the story of a boy in Brazano who fell under the spell of evil witches. The local folk called on a man named Paolo Gasparuto, who, quote, cured bewitched people and was said to, quote, roam about at night with witches and goblins. When questioned, Gasparuto admitted to telling the boy's parents that he'd snatched the boy from the arms of witches who would have taken him and then gave them a charm to keep the witches away. Gasparuto described the regular clashes that Benandanti, like him, had with evil witches. He says, quote, On Thursdays during the ember days of the year, they were forced to go with these witches to many places, such as Cormans, in front of the church at Lassico, and even into the countryside about Verona, where they fought, played, leaped about, and rode various animals, and did different things among themselves. And the women beat the men who were with them with sorghum stalks, while the men had only bunches of fennel. <laughs> that sounds like fun. The women beating the men with sorghum stalks reminds me of Dingus Day. Yes, very much. Very <laughs> much. The girls like whacking boys with pussy willow branches. Anyway. After he knew what to look for, Ginsburg discovered many more Benandanti stories in the archives. Gasparuto wasn't an outlier. 
In the Benedanti community and local lore, the Benedanti were people born in the call, meaning that when they emerged from the birth canal, they still had the birth sack around them still in- intact. And it was known that such origins allowed their spirits to leave their bodies. In addition to providing charms, medicines, and other magical services, they left their bodies regularly to battle the evil spirits that would harm their communities. The Benedanti rode on the backs of spirit rabbits, brandishing bunches of fennel, and clashed with the bad witches on the spirit plains in a battle over the life and health of their community's livestock and crops. Presumably, if they failed, the crops failed, or the livestock died, or the plague hit, any of which could spell disaster for the community. The Benedanti were not immune to an inquisition. That is how Ginsburg found them in the first place, but did occupy a unique position in their communities. They had magic, which they could and did use for good, but which they could also use for evil. People respected and relied on them, but also harbored fears about them. Belief in both good and evil magic doers and of the capacity of the cunning folk or Benedanti and the like to do both good and evil was pretty ubiquitous across early modern Europe. So being someone known as cunning or Benedanti could open one up to accusation, though that was not necessarily the case. In Denmark, witch hunts were pretty ferocious in the late 16th century, tapered off by the mid-17th century, but then had a resurgence in the 19th century. While Danish ideas about witchcraft and magic necessarily changed over time, the belief in the cunning folk, or the kluge folk, persisted into the 20th century, according to Timothy Tangerlini. After the Reformation, like in England, secular courts tried witchcraft cases in Denmark. While English laws in the 16th century moved toward criminalizing any form of magic use, which we'll talk about in a little bit, 17th century Danish lawmakers seemed to actually want to protect the Kluge folk, even as the religious authorities um, had their own ideas. A 1617 Danish law distinguished between maleficium, or malicious magic, which was attributed to the retatrol folk, or witches who were in league with the devil, and then non-malicious, indbidelde konster, sorry, my Danish is obviously (laughs) terrible, um, or imaginary arts. According to historian Jens Christian Johansson, A law in 1683 further entrenched the distinction between good and bad magic, making only bad magic illegal. Um, This changed following an already declining trend in the total number of witch trials in Denmark across the 17th century. Tangerlini notes that when Lutheranism took hold in Denmark, the Lutheran clergy saw the cunning folk, or kluge folk, as competition for the hearts and minds and maybe souls of their flock. So they started preaching that the trolldom, bad witches, caused folks illness or misfortune, and also that trolldom were cunning, and cunning was the work of the devil. By marking cunning folk as heretics and magic as an outgrowth of the devil's work, the Lutheran clergy could steer people from the authority traditionally ascribed to the Kluge folk and claim that authority as their own. But Tangerlini cites two historians, Johansson and Kim Tornso, who argue that despite the clergy's best efforts to stamp out the Kluge folk, very few cunning folk were accused of witchcraft. The secular court system focused on those who cursed or harmed others using witchcraft, and by their trade, the cunning folk tended to avoid that behavior. Drawing on Johansson's research, Tangerlini notes that of the 15... 
hundred or so, 1,519 witchcraft cases in Jutland, which is the mainland region of Denmark, that he was working with, only 10% involved cunning folk. One of these cases involved Kirsten Pin Bull's daughter of Leso, who was accused of witchcraft in 1636. She was well known in her community as Kluge folk. In 1636, a neighbor man accused her of taking his milk luck. When arrested for this and other magical quote-unquote crimes, she asserted that she was doing so within the realm of her rights as Kluge folk. It was a gift that she could give and take freely, the milk luck, which is, of course, when your cow gives good milk. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I really want to know what milk luck is. (laughs) (laughs) Another man testified that Pin had helped him out one year. He traded her some grain for a blessing on his field, which did yield a good harvest. But then he accused her of walking across his field the next year and killing his crops with her powers. Pin was ultimately found guilty, but only of lesser magical crimes rather than maleficium or maleficent magic, sort of like petty assault as opposed to attempted murder. In England, the cunning folk fulfilled key roles as healers, astrologers, pharmacists, counselors, and, at times, even witch testers. Borman notes that some, like Joan Flower, levied their extensive knowledge of herbal remedies to build a reputation and make a living. Others used props, costumes, and mystery to cultivate their aura of wisdom and power. Queen Elizabeth I's astrologer, John Dee, for example, was said to carry around a crystal, quote, as big as an egg, most bright, clear, and glorious. And, as in Italy and Denmark, cunning folk were essential to their communities. Borman notes that physicians weren't particularly effective in the healing arts, since humoral medicine still dominated medical theory in the early modern period, but it didn't matter, because only the very rich or the elite could afford a physician anyway. Common people relied on the local wise woman or man for their remedies and charms. Most cunning folk didn't charge for their services, but relied on donations instead. A token of gratitude in the form of food or services or coin was a safer system than a dissatisfied customer accusing you of witchcraft when a charm cure didn't work. In most English communities in the early modern period, neighbors didn't turn on their cunning folk unless circumstances were dire. In times of natural disaster or the pressure of a zealous witch hunter like Matthew Hopkins, such folk were susceptible. Sometimes cunning folk fanned the flames of a a witch hunt, for they were consulted when someone seemed bewitched and might make accusations against suspected evildoers themselves. In the 1610s, the Earl of Rutland's family suffered. In 1612, shortly after a royal visit with King James I and his retinue, young Henry, the oldest boy, fell ill. Some accounts suggest that the entire Manor's family fell ill. Henry died in 1612 to his parents' utter horror. We don't know how old he was, as his birth records haven't survived, but he may have been as old as four. His younger brother fell ill then as well, or shortly thereafter, and never fully recovered. Physicians were no help, though the Earl had the country's best attend his son throughout the years. Cecily and the elder Francis never had another child. Borman speculates that this may be connected to that illness in 1612 that gripped the family, or perhaps psychological barriers after the loss of Henry, or even self-inflicted barriers in which one or more of the couple decided they should just not have another child. Desperate over the deteriorating condition of their son, in 1618, the manners paid a cunning healer twice to treat Francis, young Francis. 
Because they knew her and would have known of her cunning reputation in Bodisford, Borman argues that they hired Joan Flower to treat their son. Francis, though, after treatment with Joan Flower, did not get better. And at the end of 1618, while the Earl was away from the castle at Whitehall um, at court, someone, most likely Cecilia Manners, lodged an accusation of witchcraft against Joan Flower and her daughters. Starting in the 15th century and stretching well into the 20th in some places, all across Europe and the American colonies, witch hunts damned women and men by the hundreds. In England, typically a local magistrate would have questioned both the accuser and the accused, recording the information of both to be presented at trial. Then the accuser was transported to the local assizes location. In the Flowers case, that would be to Lincoln Castle Jail to be held and interrogated until trial. The laws governing witchcraft in England were pretty clearly laid out by 1618. Henry VIII's 1542 Act Against Conjurations, Witchcraft, Sorcery, and Enchantments was England's first law dealing with accused magic users. Prior to 1542, the Catholic Church's inquisitorial board had dealt with the smattering of witchcraft cases in England, as they continued to do on the continent. But Henry's Reformation required that England have its own legislation for adjudicating over suspected cases of witchcraft. Notably, the 1542 law specifically singled out those who would use witchcraft to obtain wealth that didn't belong to them or used magic to harm others. Edward VI repealed Henry's act, and Elizabeth I reinstated and expanded her father's legislation to make witchcraft a capital crime punishable by death, particularly when witchcraft resulted in bodily harm or the death of a victim. Just as significantly, Elizabeth's expansion included any use of magic, not just magics that might harm others or make unlawful gains for the sorcerer or witch. The Elizabethan legislation declared that, quote, if any person or person shall, by witchcraft, enchantment, charm, or sorcery, tell or declare in what place any treasure or gold or silver should or might be found, or had in the earth or other secret places, or where goods or things lost or stolen should be found or become, or to provoke any person to unlawful love, or to hurt or destroy any person in his or her body, member, or goods. Sorry, that's really interesting. The um the love. Well, no the yeah, the the love, I know love charms were like a big deal, but the mm-hmm. what struck me was to to uh, to tell or declare in what place any treasure or gold or silver might be found. That was something that was actually um still happening in the, you know, early to mid 19th century in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's what um Joseph Smith was doing was looking for gold. His family was known as a, a family that had like the ability to find hidden caches of treasure um, that mm-hmm. were believed to have been left across upstate New York. So yeah. it's interesting how long lasting those ideas were. Anyway, divination, finding lost or stolen things, herbal healing, love potions, and a range of other services were performed by people known in England as cunning folk. Elizabeth's law erred on the side of caution when she included some of those services in her list of magic-related crimes. 
For such minor infractions, she outlined how guilty parties would be punished. They would, quote, suffer imprisonment by the space of one whole year without bail or man prize, and once in every quarter of the said year shall in some market town upon the market day, or at such time as any fair shall be kept there, stand openly upon the pillory by the space of six hours, and there shall openly confess his or her error and offense. But it would ultimately be James I's 1604 law under which the flower women were tried. James took the guessing out of what witchcraft might look like, describing in detail the kinds of acts and behaviors that would be criminalized in his realm. Quote, use, practice, or exercise any invocation or conjuration of any evil or wicked spirit, or consult, covenant with, entertain, employ, feed, or reward any evil and wicked spirit, to or for any intent or purpose, or take up any dead man, woman, or child out of his, her, or their grave, or any other place where the dead body resteth, or the skin, bone, or any other part of any dead person to be used in any manner of witchcraft, sorcery, charm, or enchantment. This law was established on the assumption that all magic originated with the devil and his servants, and no matter what one used it for, good or evil, that was evidence of one being in league with the devil. Because James thought of himself as a bastion between the world and the devil, as God's warrior on earth, he dedicated a great deal of his life and influence to sussing out witches and executing them. In witchcraft crimes, confession was one of the most important pieces of evidence presented in a case. Confession was extracted from individuals accused of crimes through interrogation, which almost always included in this period some form of torture. The most common form of torture was sleep deprivation. Most European states had a limit on how long sleep deprivation torture could go on. It was typically capped at 48 hours. But according to Borman, England had no such limitations in this period. If you're familiar with sleep deprivation torture and in the sleeplessness of the pandemic, I imagine many of you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Most people experience hallucinations when their brains are not allowed to sleep. One study says uh, 80% of people will eventually experience hallucinations of some kind when their brain is deprived of sleep. So the confessions that result from sleep deprivation tend to be like rambling full of bizarre details that are often contradicted the next time someone is questioned and are often the reason that so many witch confessions include demons talking animals and creatures and of course magic that's very interesting Mm -hmm. and then when you compare it to like when you know you, you can sort of if you read through a witch trial transcript you can see the difference between a sleep deprivation confession in a like physical pain torture confession because the physical pain tend to be like strings of names just short mm-hmm. brief really really devoid of the same kind of rambling detail that the sleep deprivation would have because um, you want to get the pain over with yeah and that's right why right you're confessing right that's uh that's fascinating it reminds me of that stephen king book that you didn't like insomnia <laughs> yeah that mo- that was a terrible book it was really good <laughs> sorry Stephen King but I did not enjoy it she doesn't like I'm- any of your books that's not true I love the ones that we read the first one we read what's the one with the, the mansion The Shining The Shining it's not yeah, a mansion I love that it's one. a hotel but yes I also enjoyed Dr. Sleep I read that and I enjoyed it Dr. Sleep is the sequel right I haven't I read know. it yet oh you should you will like it uh, okay 
Joan Flower died in transport to the Lincoln Castle Jail. According to the contemporary reports, she demanded that she be given bread and water on the 40-mile journey from Bodisford to Lincoln, and then declared that she would choke and die on the bread if she was guilty. And then she did choke and die. Borman argues that reports of her declaration are an embellishment, forcing an alleged witch to eat blessed bread or recite the Lord's Prayer without stumbling were examples of witch tests in this period. If the accused choked on the bread or stumbled over the words, or if she couldn't read or recite it because she was illiterate and afraid, that was considered evidence of her guilt. Building on James I's law, in 1618, which was just before the flower women were arrested, Michael Dalton, who was an English barrister, published a guide for how justices of the peace ought to deal with suspected witches. This manual gave very specific advice for the identification of guilty witches. For example, witches were believed to have a familiar or spirit that was their connection to the devil or some other demon. Dalton says, quote, these witches have ordinarily a familiar or spirit which appeareth to them, sometimes in one shape, sometimes in another, as in the shape of a man, woman, boy, dog, cat, foal, fowl, hare, rat, toad, and etc. And to these spirits they give names and they meet together to christen them. The familiar trope must have been just completely demoralizing. It essentially meant by Dalton's definition that if you were accused of witchcraft, any human friend or animal pet was evidence that could be held against you in court of law. Joan Flower had a pet cat, which she and her daughters called Rutterkin. Aw, I like the name Rutterkin. Cat name, I love it. In the only surviving pamphlet recording the trial, Joan's daughter Margaret, likely after a sleep deprivation torture session, said that quote finding a glove about two or three years since of Francis Lord Ross on a dunghill, she delivered it to her mother, who put it into hot water, and after took it out and rubbed it on Rutterkin the cat and bade him go upwards, and after her mother buried it in the yard and set a mischief light on him, but he will mend again. Notably, this was from the first of Margaret's interrogations. There are three recorded in the in this pamphlet that we're talking about in total. And she says here that Francis was supposed to fall ill, but then mend again. Right. Uh, and this narrative was challenged throughout the trial. The pamphlet states in later testimonies that Joan intended for young Francis to never recover, um, which is becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because sh- shortly before this, is, this pamphlet is published and shortly after the trial itself, um, Francis does in fact die. Um, he does not recover. Um, because we don't actually know the author of the pamphlet or who commissioned it, it was anonymously written in published um tracy borman rightly questions like everything that's reported in it so it's like a very confusing pamphlet which is why i'm going with her dates over the pamphlet's dates Mm -hmm. um but it's it's a lot of contradictory and back and forth and you know just just is evidence that this is all fabricated and was you know these women were scapegoats Mm -hmm. Dalton's guide also instructs magistrates to look for the witch's teat, or devil's mark, where the familiar would suck on their body, which would be, quote, a blue spot or a red spot, like a flea biting, sometimes the flesh sunk in and hollow. He counsels magistrates to be diligent in searching for the mark and, quote, be often in their secretest parts and to order witch pricking because the devil's mark would not bleed when poked with a needle. Ugh. A major issue 
that was levied against Joan Flower was that she was known to swear and that she was believed to be an atheist because she didn't attend church. Such behavior was widely associated with witches and witchcraft. Dalton notes that witches, quote, be given to usual cursing and bitter imprecations and withal use threatenings to be revenged and their imprecations or some other mischief presently followeth. As hopefully these first few indicate, if someone was accused of witchcraft, especially a woman, it was very easy to assemble evidence against them. The witch's teat and devil's mark were nondescript enough that they could be any blemish or mark. And if you had a friend or a pet, you were f***ed. Your victim's testimony, your neighbor's testimony, and the word of your servants or children, as if children don't just like make stuff up when prompted all the time all were viable evidence in court and enough to send a woman or a man accused of witchcraft to their death dalton's guide did also point to potential evidence that would have been harder to collect if the dead body of a witch's victim bleeds when she touches it or if a dead person gives testimony against a witch but for the most part the guide made sure that outsiders people considered a burden on their neighbors feuding neighbors, or anyone who was just disliked by the community, someone like Joan Flower, were at risk when fear of witchcraft was afoot. Even as manuals for witch-finding and tools for more effective torture were churned out every decade, however, there were those who critiqued the system regularly. In the 1560s, Dutch physician Johan Weyer argued that witchcraft was not real and that those who believe themselves to be witches suffered from delusions and should be treated for mental illness. In 1584, a few years before James VI launched his Scottish witch hunt, um, Sir Reginald Scott published A Discovery of Witchcraft, which was a core text among the skeptics community, in which he argues that the majority of witches accused were old women who annoyed their neighbors, that believing that humans had magical powers was idolatrous because only God has that power, and that there is no biblical pretext for witch hunting, and that there was scientific proof that witchcraft was not real. Scott's book really irked King James, who banned it in Scotland. James went on to publish his own witchcraft treatise in 1597, clearly responding to the works of men like Scott. Demonology pretends to be a reasonable philosophical dialogue between a skeptic and a believer, but like James himself, the dialogue slants heavily in favor of the believer, and the reader is left with the inevitable conclusion that not only are witches real, but everyone's immortal soul relies on the banishment of such evildoers from this earth. James wrote Demonology after his famous 1590s witch hunt. He believed then that there was a nefarious witch plot to kill him and his new wife, Anne of Denmark, as they sailed from Denmark back to Scotland in 1592. They were hit by a storm. Oh, a storm on the sea. Yes, storms, which never happen except by witchcraft. Except except by witchcraft. (laughs) And their ship nearly sank. Um, Back in Denmark, which was grappling with its own spate of witch panics, several dozen women were tried and executed for the attempted assassination via witchcraft of Anne and James. James then took it upon himself to launch a parallel witch hunt in Scotland, uh, and over 100 people were arrested and tried. In 1612, a Spanish university-educated lawyer named Alonso de Salazar Frias published a tract on the unreliability of torture, arguing that people would say literally anything to stop physical punishment. So just like, just let that settle with you for a second that since 1612, 
There have been treatises pointing out that torture does not work. And yet. And yet. And yet. As we already mentioned, sleep deprivation makes the accused talk at length about wild details, visions, or hallucinations, and a range of truths and lies born out of the mental state of someone whose brain is shutting down from a lack of sleep. The thumbscrews, rack, pair of anguish, and various other instruments of torture were more likely to get screamed confessions, or a few names, or a handful of incoherent words, before the accused passed out from the pain. What now seems obvious to us um, was just as obvious to some, like de Salazar-Frias in 1612. These methods continued to be used in Spain as elsewhere after 1612, but not without the objections of a few on really quite reasonable grounds. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite Halloween movies, which is the, um, oh, Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Where Johnny uh, Depp's mother in it is put in one of these torture devices because she was the Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she was mm-hmm. believed to be a witch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, horrifying. Oh, that's the scariest part of that movie is when he, it keeps opening up and it's like a, a river of uh-huh. blood. <laughs> yeah. By 1619, when the Flower Women were tried and convicted. There was a marked decline in belief in witchcraft among elites, at least. Even James, who was famous for his witch hunting when he was, you know, just king of Scotland, backpedaled a bit in his fervor once he came to power in England. Um, Certainly by 1619, at least, he was no longer personally overseeing the torture and interrogation of individuals accused of witchcraft. Still, James I played a rather significant role in the trial of the flower women. The Earl of Rutland and his family worked to bring James to the throne, and then Francis Manners cultivated the king's favor throughout his lifetime. James made at least five recorded visits to Belvoir Castle in Francis Manners' lifetime, including in 1612, just before the manor's eldest boy, Henry, died suddenly. James enjoyed hunting on the Earl's grounds, and indeed, the Earl was one of the wealthiest and best-connected men in the King's nobility. That was increased even more so after 1620, when the Earl's only daughter, Catherine, married the King's favorite, George Villiers, the Marquess of Buckingham. When the time came to dispatch judges to Lincolnshire, where the flower women were held, James I sent Edward Bromley, best known for his harsh treatment of the Pendle witches in 1612. There can be no doubt that James was aware of what was happening in Bodisford and Lincoln. To send such a formidable judge, one who wouldn't hesitate to threaten and conjole the jury to ensure the conviction of women accused of witchcraft, speaks to James's personal and political stakes in the case. For six weeks leading up to their trial, Philippa and Margaret were held at Lincoln Castle Jail. They'd watched their mother die at some point on the 40-mile journey from Bodisford to Lincoln. Once in the prison, they most likely went hungry more often than not, as prisoners in the private jails of the English judicial system only ate at the charity of the jail owner. They were interrogated, tortured, and driven relentlessly to confess that they were witches and that their mother had cursed the manor's boys. Philippa held out the longest. She has no recorded confession until February 4th, whereas her sister Margaret first confessed on January 22nd. But when she did confess, Philippa threw her sister to the wolves, implicating her as a witch with a neck-sucking familiar. Quote, 
She saith that her mother and her sister maliced the Earl of Rutland, his countess, and their children, because her sister Margaret was put out of the lady's service of laundry and exempted from other services about the house, whereupon her said sister, by the commandment of her mother, brought from the castle the right-hand glove of the Lord Henry Ross, which she delivered to her mother, who presently rubbed it on the back of her spirit, Rutterkin, and then put it into boiling water. Afterward, she pricked it often and buried it in the yard, wishing the Lord Ross might never thrive, and so her sister Margaret continued with her mother, where she often saw the cat Rutterkin leap on her shoulder and suck her neck. She further confessed that she heard her mother often curse the earl and his lady, and thereupon would boil feathers and blood together, using many devilish speeches and strange gestures. Remember Margaret's confession in January, in which she claimed that she retrieved one of young Francis's gloves from Belvoir Castle grounds, and her mother conducted a similar ritual to curse Francis, rubbing it on the cat's back. Mm -hmm. In addition to Margaret and Philippa's confessions, which were presented as evidence in the courtroom, the magistrates heard testimonies from the Earl of Rutland and from three other local cunning women, Anne Baker, a friend and confidant of Joan Flower, L. Green, and then Joan Willamut, a cunning woman from Goadsby, where George Villiers and his mother lived, some 40 miles from Bodisford. All three women admitted to their own magic use and implicated Joan in these activities as well. Borman suspects that Joan Willamut was a plant sent to Bodisford in the trial to ensure that Joan Flower and her daughters would hang for the witchcraft-induced deaths of the Manners boys. Why? Tracy Borman puts forward a theory in her book that is quite interesting, that George Villiers or his mother actually killed the Manners boys, or had them killed at any rate, to ensure that Catherine Manners would be the sole heir of the Earl's fortune. Hmm. George Villiers was the king's favorite. At 21, he caught the eye of the king at a hunt, and then courtiers spent a bunch of money to dress him and get him appointed as the royal cupbearer so that he would jostle out the previous favorite who was disliked at the court. He succeeded and was quickly rocketed to new social and political heights, granted a knighthood, a marquess, and finally, in 1623, a dukedom. His mother wanted him to marry Catherine Manners, Francis Manners' daughter, by his first marriage. If either of the boys were in the picture, they would inherit, even though Catherine was the eldest child. Primogeniture. Borman suspects the Villiers because they had the means. They would have visited Belvoir Castle as often as the king, which was at least five times between 1610 and 1620. And they had the motive, which was the fortune. That Joan Willamot, who was from the Villiers' hometown, was involved in this case at all is suspect. And Borman also suspects that the pamphlet, which is the only record of the case and would have been the main source of information about the case for public consumption at the time, was commissioned by either Villiers or Manners himself to affirm the veracity of the flower's guilt. For indeed, Philippa and Margaret Flower were found guilty of witchcraft, and they were blamed for the death of young Henry Manners, Lord of Ross. But as Borman notes, the swift and brutal way the judicial system disposed of the Flower women did not sit well with all involved. But whatever penance or guilt the involved parties may have grappled with is really hard to quantify. 
One of the men involved in the interrogation of the flowers was Samuel Fleming, a 70-something-year-old clergyman who served the Bodisford Church, and who seemed to, be, to harbor guilt about how everything went down for the rest of his life. Upon his death, he bequeathed property to establish an almshouse for old women in Bodisford, which Borman suggests was atonement for his part in the unjustified death of Joan Flowers and her daughters. Hmm. Borman's research suggests that the three women who implicated themselves while testifying against the Flowers did not follow the Flowers to the gallows. So there's an Ellen Green, a record of Ellen Green later, uh, you know, like five or ten years later, whose medical care was paid for by some unknown benefactor mm. years after the trial. Borman actually thinks it might have been Cecilia Manners, who outlived her children and her husband by more than 20 years. The Villiers certainly left no discernible records of their involvement in the Manners boys' deaths, nor their stake in finding the Flowers women guilty. No one involved left behind written records of their regrets or sense of injustice. Once the flowers were buried, so too was the responsibility for the boys' deaths, which is especially disturbing since young Francis wasn't even in the grave yet when Margaret and Philippa were marched to the gallows. There's a lot of what-ifs and maybes in this particular story, and Tracy Borman had a monumental task in front of her when she decided to write a book about the Belvoir witch trials. Some individuals involved in the case, like the Manners family, Samuel Fleming, the judge, they left behind letters and ledgers with slivers of their part in the condemnation of the flowers. But the official trial records were lost or destroyed. Then the only thorough record of the proceedings is this flawed, anonymously written pamphlet, which was published after the conclusion of the trial. Borman suggests that the pamphlet could have been written by or commissioned by Francis Manners to ensure the narrative of the Flowers' murder was told in a flattering light to the Manners as the wronged parties. She also suggests that perhaps George Villiers commissioned the pamphlet to eliminate doubt about the Flowers' guilt and eliminate Villiers as a suspect. Either man could have even written the pamphlet itself, and we will never, ever know. Borman comes down hard on the side that this was a miscarriage of justice. Unsurprisingly, there are websites that take a different perspective, taking the confessions in the pamphlet at face value, assuming that magic is real and the flowers did in fact curse the boys, or that the confession itself was at least true and that they tried to curse the flower boys, which was, you know, somehow amounts to the same thing. Borman's theory that George Villiers arranged the deaths of the two boys is intriguing. Of course, it's just as possible and likely that these were just two sickly boys, that both were so fragile and that Cecily never conceived again suggests to, you know, suggests to us that they were maybe sickly infants from the get-go, probably made worse by the physicians who treated them. Whoever the author of the pamphlet was, they understood the philosophical and political landscape that permeated elite English society in 1618. There were many non-believers who would have looked at the Flowers case and called bullshit were it not for the noble wronged parties involved. At one point, the author of the pamphlet pontificates at length on the nature of witchcraft in England and says, listen, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. You can give it any name you want. Necromancer magi chaldi whatever in england we just call it a witch and perhaps to assure the manners that their case against the flowers women was justified the pamphlet author goes on quote as for the conceit of wise men or wise women they are all merely cozeners and deceivers so that if they make you believe that by their means you shall hear of things lost or stolen 
It is either done by confederacy or put off by protraction to deceive you of your money. In other words, a cunning man or woman who peddles magical cures is just as guilty as someone who practices magic to harm others. Whatever Joan Flower was or was not, she was paid to heal young Lord Ross using magic power she claimed to have, and she failed to deliver. So that was enough for the pamphlet writer, whoever he was, to condemn her. And apparently that was enough for the Lincoln judge, jury, and executioner, too. Dun, dun, dun! That was really interesting, and now I want to read this book. It's a good book. I'll give it to you when I'm done with my game. So this is, um... Oh. Mm -hmm. Is your game specifically about this Yeah, it's about this trial. Oh, awesome. It's, uh, we're starting it on Tuesday, and I'm pretty excited. Are you going to write it up for RTTP? Probably. You should. I mean, if it goes well, yeah. If it goes well, I guess so. I think it'll, I, I, so I also got in contact with the man who wrote a game about the Salem witch trials, because uh-huh. that's how I want to cap off this class, is we're going to start it with this one that I wrote, and then we're going to, they're going to write bios for um, Salem characters, mm. and then, then we'll play a, a role-playing game using the scaffolding that this, um, whose name I'm now forgetting, Greg, I think his name is Greg, um, from somewhere in the south <laughs> greg from um, somewhere in the south it's very arkansas specific. or alabama one of the a's one of the a's from down there <laughs> um and his game currently is more about the accusations and like the trials and what could be used as evidence uh-huh. my game is more about political intrigue i mm. think interesting yeah, and, like, the philosophical ideas about witchcraft. So we open up on the dinner at Belvoir Castle with the king, so one of the king's visits in 1616, and then the nobles who are there are going to have a debate about witchcraft, and um, they'll be skeptics and they'll be believers, and then the servants will be sort of having their own conversation in the kitchen. That sounds mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I love it. And I wrote it, obviously, for to be online since I want to. I'm playing all my games on Zoom, so it'll be. <clears throat> it could be a permanently Zoom game yeah. for for classes who you know who are fully online. This could be a fun way to do that in the future. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah, it's um. This was a, a meandering episode. Hopefully, it makes sense in the long. Oh run. yeah, it made it made sense to me. And it has, there are things in it that I'm glad that you talked about because I came across them and couldn't really work them into mine, like the Maleficium. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a big part of mine as well because um, there's such a weird fine line between just like folk belief and something that contradicts Catholicism. Mm. You know what I mean? So like they're people still as you talked about you know people used these services and found them useful a lot of the times but officially they were not sanctioned right and so it came up a lot in in my reading this like difference between you know good magic and bad magic or like what counts as maleficium and then there were other people who were like no it always is witchcraft it's always coming from the devil no matter what because Mm -hmm. it's you know how else would they have gotten these powers so right right 
super interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to this uh, episode about Joan Flower and her her daughters and their tragic story and cunning folk in and, England. And Rudderkin. And Rudderkin. Oh, I need a cat so I can name her Rudderkin. Rudderkin the kitty. Meow. Um, you can always follow us on Twitter at dig underscore history where, we're, you know, Sarah's laying down those sweet Twitter jams. <laughs> um, you could join our revolutionary uh, meme posting <laughs> dig history pod squad dig history pod squad um you know we did go facebook viral we did a, apparently a knife wielding historiography meme i i am um, going to take credit for that even though it had nothing literally all i did was just re like i just shared something <laughs> that's all <yes>. i did <laughs> it became mad but i'm gonna make it, it sound like i am a social media maven you're a maven <laughs> and um you can support us on Patreon, dig podcast on Patreon, or join our uh, community on Himalaya and Lyceum, mm-hmm. which are podcasting apps um, where you can get exclusive access to behind the scenes sort of um, content and material and, and communities with mm-hmm. your favorite podcasters, including us. And Lyceum is a might be a really great tool, particularly for those of you who are teaching online right now, because um, it allows you to create playlists of educational um podcasts not just history podcasts but there are you know we are on there and and other history podcasts are as well and so that might be a good tool for your students so check it out absolutely yeah great and uh until then until next time bye bye stay saucy stay stay saucy this podcast was produced by the historians of dig elizabeth garner Mazurik, sarah hanley cousins Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. That was a really long sentence, and you did such a good job. (laughs) I am accustomed to the way that you write, the way that you think, the way that you speak. I do speak such long and rambling sentences. (laughs) You do too. It's true. In Russia, the Vedmak. Yeah, close enough. (laughs) Do you know how to pronounce it? Uh, my friend Katie told me at one point, and then I immediately forgot. Oh, okay. I told her to record it for me, and then I, and she did. Oh, okay. <laughs> that one I don't have any problems with. <laughs> German. It's basically English. Build a... Gary, <laughs> <laughs> shut the f*** up! <laughs> hey! Hey! In France? Oh, for Christ's sake. Oh, shit. Sorry. Borman suggests that they hire Joan Flower to to treat their son. Does that sound like she recommended it to them as, she, as if she was there? What's the song at the beginning of Eurovision? Is it Volcano Man? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking the other day how much I liked that movie. <laughs> yeah, I've, I think about it all the time. I bought I the... Did. I bought the whole soundtrack. No, you did not. To, yes, I listen to Yaya Ding Dong in the car all the time. Oh my god, I might have to do that because my kids are obsessed with that song. <clears throat> you know, it's it's all about penises, right? Um, did you listen to the words? No, it's Yaya Ding Dong. My love for you is growing wide and long. <laughs> I guess I just didn't realize that that was a a penis. You may thing. not you may not want them to be singing those lyrics at school. <laughs> That's funny. We sing it to the baby all the time. (laughs) Yep.
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save 